All right. Exodus 26. Y'all ready to fly? We're going to have to fly to get through this today. We will finish. We will complete Exodus 26. We were in Exodus 26 last week, and we talked about the tabernacle because this is what Exodus 26 presents to us. We specifically talked about the tabernacle as a man. And that man is Christ. So let's read. I'm going to read the chapter to you and then we're going to talk about it. You ready? Exodus 26. Moreover, you shall make the tabernacle with ten curtains of fine woven linen and blue, purple, and scarlet thread. With artistic designs of cherubim, you shall weave them. The length of each curtain shall be 28 cubits in width and each curtain four cubits. I'm sorry. Each curtain shall be 28 cubits in length and the width of each curtain four cubits. And every one of the curtains shall have the same measurements. Five curtains shall be coupled to one another and the other five curtains shall be coupled to one another. And you shall make loops of blue yarn on the edge of the curtain of one set. And likewise, you shall do on the outer edge of the other curtain of the second set. Fifty loops you shall make in the one curtain and fifty loops you shall make in the edge of the curtain that is on the end of the second set. And the loops may be clasped that the loops may be clasped to one another. And you shall make 50 clasps of gold and couple the curtains together with the clasps so that they may be one tabernacle. And you shall also make curtains of goat's hair to be a tent over the tabernacle. And you shall make 11 curtains and the length of each curtain shall be 30 cubits and the width of each curtain, four cubits and 11 curtains shall be, shall have the same measurements and you shall couple five curtains by them and six curtains by themselves and you shall double over the sixth curtain at the forefront of the tent and make 50 loops on the edge of the curtain that is outermost in one set and 50 loops on the edge of the curtain of the second set. And you shall make 50 bronze clasps, put the clasps in the loops and couple them to the, and couple the tent together that it may be one. The remnant that remains of the curtain of the tent and half curtain that remains shall hang over the back of the tabernacle and a cubit on the side on one side and a cubit on the other side of what remains of the length of the curtains of the tent shall be hanging over the sides of the tabernacle on this side and on that side to cover it and you shall also make a covering of ram skins dyed red for the tent and covering and a covering of badger skins above that and for the tabernacle, you shall make boards of acacia wood standing upright. Ten cubits shall be the length of a board, and a cubit and a half shall be the width of each board. Two tenons shall be in each board for binding one another. And thus you shall make for all the boards of the tabernacle. You shall make the boards for the tabernacle, 20 boards for the south side. You shall make 40 sockets of silver under the 20 boards two sockets under each of the boards for its two tenons and the second side of the tabernacle, the north side, there shall be 20 boards and 40 sockets of silver, two sockets under each of the boards for the far side of the tabernacle westward. You shall make six boards and you shall also make two boards for the two back corners of the tabernacle that they shall be coupled together at the bottom and they shall be coupled together at the top by one ring. Thus it shall be for both of them they shall be for two corners. So there shall be eight boards with their sockets of silver, 16 sockets, two sockets under each board. And you shall make bars of acacia wood, five for the boards on one side of the tabernacle, five bars for the boards on the other side of the tabernacle, and five bars for the boards on the side of the tabernacle of the far side westward. The middle bar shall pass through the midst of the boards end to end, and you shall overlay the boards with gold, and make their rings of gold as holders for the bars and overlay the bars with gold. And you shall raise up the tabernacle according to its pattern, which you were shown on the mountain. And you shall make a veil woven of blue, purple, and scarlet thread and fine woven linen. And it shall be woven with an artistic design of cherubim. And you shall hang it upon the four 
pillars of acacia wood overlaid with gold. Their hooks shall be gold upon four sockets of silver, and you shall hang the veil from the clasp, and you shall bring the ark of the testimony in there behind the veil, and the veil shall be a divider for you between the holy place and the most holy place. And you shall put the mercy seat upon the ark of the testimony in the most holy place. And you shall set the table outside the veil and the lampstand across from the table on the side of the tabernacle toward the south. And you shall put the table on the north side. And you shall make a screen for the door of the tabernacle woven of blue, purple, and scarlet thread and fine woven linen made by a weaver. And you shall make for the screen five pillars of acacia wood and overlay them with gold. Their hooks shall be gold and they shall, and you shall cast five sockets of bronze for them. That's a lot, isn't it? Father in heaven, thank you for your word. Thank you for this gospel. Thank you for the beautiful picture, the revelation of Christ that you give to us throughout your word. Give us eyes to see, ears to hear. Give us hearts that are open minds that are open that we would receive your word and your word would word would be planted into our hearts and bear a harvest of righteous fruit for your glory we ask this in jesus name amen all right so there's a lot of detail here we could literally spend weeks months talking about the detail here but we're not going to do that so i'm really trying to go through this and give you this overview the tabernacle had four layers so as we, as i read this I'm sure it was difficult for you to follow. I don't know if you can picture in your mind what this tabernacle looked like. If you can't, just Google um, Tabernacle of Moses and hit images and you'll have lots of pictures of the tabernacle come up. But if you can imagine, um, uh, so this tabernacle, we begin with layers of fabric and animal skins. And as Moses is receiving the instruction from the Lord, God begins with the innermost layer or covering. And so the tabernacle had four coverings, and it begins with this innermost layer uh, that was linen. It was fine woven linen with blue, purple, and scarlet thread. So if you can picture, this is a tapestry, and without going into a lot of detail, this was not like a sheet. This was more like four fingers thick. It was extremely heavy and sturdy. And so this first tapestry of woven linen with blue, scarlet, and purple created this multicolored tapestry and woven into this tapestry artistically were cherubim. Remember cherubim? Cherubim is what guarded the entrance to the Garden of Eden. Cherubim is, were the two beings that, that guarded the entrance. Cherubim were the two beings on top of the mercy seat, and it was between the cherubim at the garden. It was between the cherubim in the holy place above the ark that God dwelt among his people. And so this first tapestry, this innermost covering, had this multicolored weaving with these cherubim artistically all over it. The next layer was goat's hair. And this would have been a very fine, uh, quality, white goat's hair. It was not an uncommon um, material to make tents. It's what tents were made from. The next layer was a ram skin dyed red. And then the last layer, the outer layer, was a badger skin. If you've got a King James Bible, it may say dolphin So we don't really know whether it was a badger or a dolphin. Um, That was the outer layer. These layers were upon a wooden structure, acacia wood, and all the wood was overlaid with gold. So there was nothing that was made of wood that was not overlaid with gold. So you didn't see any bare wood in this tabernacle. You didn't see any bare wood in the furnishings. It was wood overlaid with gold. And remember we said 
in terms of the ark and the table and all of those things, that spoke of the humanity of Christ as well as the deity of Christ. Christ is the God-man. He is 100% divine. He is, was 100% human. And so all of this is speaking of these truths. So you had the structure of wood overlaid with gold, and then you had silver sockets or feet that were held together by tenons or hands that were set in these sockets, and it was all connected together It's just like the picture of a body. It was a movable, functioning tabernacle, just like our bodies are movable and functioning. And so these fabrics and these animal skins were laid over this wooden structure. This wooden structure held up these coverings, these tapestries that covered the walls and the ceiling. So... If you can picture this, now we're just talking about the tabernacle. We're not talking about the the outer court and the curtain fence that went all the way around this compound. We're just talking about the tabernacle, the part where the Holy of Holies was, where the mercy seat and the ark were and the table and the lamp and the altar of incense, the holy place and the most holy place. This was under a covering. It was under a tent. And if you were standing on the outside looking at it, it was covered with badger skin and it was very plain looking. It just looked like a tent. You couldn't see though, you couldn't judge what was inside by looking at the outside of it. So let's go through and let's talk about these layers because these layers are significant. The linen woven with blue, purple, and scarlet with cherubim decorating it. That was the inmost layer. So if if you were a priest and you walked into the tabernacle, the walls were golden because this is acacia wood put together with tenons, all fitted in these feet that were on the ground, held by these hands, these gold, these silver sockets. And this wood overlaid with gold. But above you would be this tapestry. So if you looked up, you would see this beautiful tapestry that had cherubim woven into it. You walked into the holy place, you would see the same thing. There was a veil there. So there was an entrance, the outside that was a multicolored tapestry of fine linen. So it had white and blue and purple and scarlet. And these are all significant. And then the, the, the veil, this, this veil that was four fingers thick that separated the holy place from the most holy place where the Ark of the Covenant was, it had the same colors, but yet that veil leading into where the Ark was had these cherubim woven into it. And it wasn't like a Persian rug. You might have a Persian rug in your house and you turn that rug over and the back side looks really ugly and the front side is really pretty you've all heard the analogy you know our life is like the tapestry it 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 sometimes looks ugly unattractive because we're 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 seeing the back side of the tapestry that's not what this was this this was beautiful on both sides this had cherubim the veil had cherubim on both sides the curtains had cherubim on both sides it was woven in that way it was It was, I can't do it. I can't even hardly sew a button on my shirt. So I don't know how they did it. But this is what it was. And so this first layer, this first tapestry, woven of fine linen with purple, blue, and scarlet, and cherubim artistically adorning it. This linen curtain, this tapestry was the innermost covering. It represented Christ in all of his nature, all of his character, and all of his essence that's revealed to us in his person. Well, who is Jesus? The white linen represents Jesus in his humanity. Jesus, the Son of Man. Well, who is Jesus? Well, he was not just a man. The blue represents heaven and his deity, his divinity. The blue represented that this is not just a great man, a great prophet, but this is the God-man. This is God 
This is the word who is God, who came in the flesh, became flesh and dwelt among us. The blue represented heaven and the divinity of Christ, the God-man. The purple pictures for us his royalty. He is called the king of kings. His, his cross was, was labeled with a sign that says, this is the king of the Jews. And in Hebrew, that phrase, king of the Jews, spelt out the unspeakable name of God. It's why the Jews were so upset. And they told Pilate, don't put that sign on that cross. Because they realized what that sign said. Pilate had no clue what it said. But heaven knew what it said. So the purple represented his royalty. It represents Jesus, the king of kings. And the red represents the blood of the suffering servant who is our atoning sacrifice. Now, just a real quick aside. Sometimes you'll hear critics of the Bible. Actually, somebody posted a meme the other day. And it was a meme that basically was making, the fun, making fun of the fact that we have four Gospels. Basically, it was the meme that says, okay, guys, I'm only going to say this once. Listen. And there are the, the, supposedly the four uh, apostles writing, even though people don't even know their Bible, they don't even know history. Luke, who wrote one of the Gospels, was not present there with Jesus. He was actually a Gentile doctor who wrote an account, but it is one of our four Gospels. And we have four Gospels that are different expressions. They're not contradicting accounts. They are different accounts that have different details, but they all speak with one voice because they all reveal to us one man, one person who is Christ. Matthew's gospel was written to the Jews, and Matthew's gospel reveals Jesus, the king of kings. It speaks of his royalty represented by the purple in this tapestry. Mark's gospel, going in order that's in your Bible, Mark's gospel presents Jesus, the suffering servant, which is represented by the scarlet in this tapestry who redeemed us by his blood. Luke's gospel represents the white linen, the humanity of Jesus. And this is what the gospel of Luke represents, the son of man, Jesus, the man. And John's gospel, different from the other three, presents Jesus the God-man. In the beginning was the Word. Mark's begins with a genealogy. I mean, Matthew's begins with a genealogy showing the, the royal line of David. Luke's begins with a genealogy tracing the genealogy of Jesus through Mary. He was a son of Adam in that sense, though his father was God. But John's gospel presents this picture of Jesus. This is the blue in the tapestry, the divinity, the heavenly nature, the heavenly essence, the divine essence of who Christ is. He is the God-man. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. This is what John's gospel presents. So we don't have four competing, contradicting gospels. We have four gospels that present the, the four characteristics, the very nature and essence of who Jesus is. Jesus the King, Jesus the servant, Jesus the man, and Jesus our God. And this is what this linen represents. This is what this tapestry represents. It's why God told Moses to make this tapestry with these colors in there because this was all about a man, the man, Jesus Christ. And on that tapestry with those colors were cherubim. Cherubim were woven into to remind Israel that God was dwelling among them, that he is Emmanuel, God with us. And the cherubim guarded the way to God. They reminded Israel of God's unapproachable, fiery presence guarding the entrance to the garden and the way to the tree of life. Remember when God drives man out of the garden, he does it for his own good in his grace. Lest man take and eat from the tree of life and live forever in a state of sin and death. 
And so these cherubim are there guarding the entrance and the fire, the pillar of fire wasn't a flaming sword that the cherubim had. It was the very presence of God dwelling between those cherubim, the same presence that dwelt between the cherubim on the mercy seat. And this is why God instructed Moses to weave cherubim into the veil and into the tapestry because this was God's house. This is where God was dwelling. And so the image of those cherubim woven all over those curtains reminded Israel of man's costly fall into sin and death. But it also reminded him of God's free grace because God didn't just cover man's sin. God says, I am going to make a way to take away your sin. So God slaughtered an animal and covered Adam and Eve with animal skins to cover their nakedness, to cover their sinfulness. He gave instruction for a tabernacle and a system of animal sacrifice that would cover the sins of Israel. But God was doing all of this to point us to the ultimate sacrifice, the ultimate redeemer that would come, who is Jesus Christ, whom John the Baptist declared when he says, behold, the lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And so these cherubim were there to remind us of the fall, but also to remind us of the promise and the salvation that God would bring to his people. That God would give to man who deserved death his free grace and bring life. So God gives us along with these, we're going to see he gives us numbers that carry meaning. So there were 10 curtains, 28 cubits long, 4 cubits wide. 28 divided by 4, this is math class, is 7. Now these are all significant numbers. The number 10 represents the law of God, the testimony of God, the complete testimony of God, the completeness of order. The number four is always representative of the earth. It was on the fourth day of creation that the, the, the sun, the moon, and the stars, and the planets were created. There are four seasons. There are four directions. Four always represents and speaks of the earth. 28 divided by four is seven. Seven is the number of divine completion or divine perfection. So you see, through all of this, God is giving us so much truth and so much encouragement. He is showing us what he is going to do through Jesus Christ, who is the complete fulfillment of the law, who is the perfect, complete expression of divine perfection. And he didn't do all that he did from heaven. He came to the earth and did his work of redemption. And he redeemed us, not once we got to heaven, but he redeemed us here on this earth. So all of these numbers have meaning. They, they mean something. They speak something. Jesus came to the earth. He fulfilled the law. He, he completed it. He is the law kept perfectly as a man born on this earth, born in the flesh. He is also the God-man, the king, and the servant redeemer who perfectly ruled and kept God's order and God's law. These curtains were the inside covering of the tabernacle and they were visible only from the inside. And so when the tabernacle was set up, these curtains could not be seen from the outside. They were only seen from the inside. The revelation of Christ is not going to come from the outside. I can tell you about these things all day. I can, can take you through and, and we can learn all kinds of things about fabric and numbers and skins and red and purple and blue and white. We can talk about that till the cows come home. And you can hear it, but until something happens on the inside of you, it means nothing to you. It's just good information for a trivia game. But God didn't give us this information for a trivia game. He gave us this information because he wants to reveal Christ to us. And that revelation of Christ has to come, has to happen inside. It doesn't come from out here. It comes from within here. And this is the picture we see with the tabernacle. 
So the next layer was goat's hair. The goat's hair, fine and white, represented the pure righteousness of Christ in his humanity, both inwardly and outwardly. The use of goat's hair was not uncommon in making tents. Goat's hair covering went immediately above this fine tapestry of multicolored with the, with the cherubim there. And the numbers associated with the goat skin is interesting as well. God gives us numbers on the first, the innermost covering, and he gives us numbers on the goat's hair. And the numbers associated with the goat's hair, the covering was 30 cubits long and four cubits wide. There were to be 11 of them. 30 is divisible by five and six. Five is the number of grace. Six is the number of man. Grace and man. Eleven. Five and six equal eleven. It's another picture of God's grace for man. Four again. There were four cubits wide. Four again is the number that speaks of the earth. God's grace for man was not just held in heaven, but God's grace for man came to earth where man was. And he poured out that grace upon man. He pours out that grace upon men in Jesus Christ. He pours out grace upon all men but he pours out in particular saving grace for those men in Jesus Christ. So you had the, the linen innermost, you had the goat's hair that was the first layer of protection over that, what commonly tents were made out of in that day, but above that there was a ram's skin, not just any old ram's skin, but a ram's skin dyed red. The ram skin represents Christ our substitute the red symbolizes his blood the blood of sacrifice he is the ram that Abraham found in the bush remember when Isaac and Abraham are going up to the mountain and Isaac's carrying the wood and he's carrying and they got the knife and they've got the fire and, and Isaac says to his dad he says dad I we got the wood we got the fire we got everything but but where where's the lamb I don't see the lamb Isaac not realizing he was going to be the sacrifice. And Abraham says to Isaac, his son, he says, don't worry, son, God will provide for himself a lamb. They get up on top of Mount Moriah. Abraham ties up Isaac, puts him on the altar. He's getting ready to plunge the knife into him. And God says, stop, don't harm your son. And behind Abraham caught in the thicket was a, not a lamb, was a ram. And Abraham takes the lamb from the thicket and he sacrifices the ram in substitute for Isaac, which is a picture of Christ, our substitute, sacrificed in our place so that we may live. This is the ram skin dyed red. We'll talk a little bit more about that in a little bit. The next was the badger or the dolphin skin. It was not attractive. It was not beautiful. It was actually quite homely and quite ugly. Badger skin, some translators um, also refer to as a dolphin, represented this outer humanity of Jesus. This was, whatever this was, badger, dolphin, seal, whatever it was, this is what they used to make shoes out of. This is what they would shod their feet with because it was so tough and so durable. And the animal skin was used to shod feet to make sandals. But it was not attractive. The point was not for it to be attractive. The point was that it was purposeful. It was used. It was created. It was designed for a purpose. And that purpose had nothing to do with beauty. It had everything to do with function. Now, why, why this on the outside? All of this beauty on the inside, and no one can see it except the priests that go inside. The common, everyday Israelite was not allowed to go in and see that. 
if we weren't priests, if we weren't born of the tribe of Aaron, Aaron's tribe, if we weren't Levites, we could not go in and see this beauty. All we could see from the outside was this badger skin covering that was quite ugly and unattractive. Listen to Isaiah, the prophet, Isaiah 53, verses 1 through 3. Who has believed our report, and to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? For he, speaking of Christ, prophesied of Christ 750 years before his birth. For he shall grow up before him as a tender plant and as a root out of dry ground. He has no form or comeliness, and when we see him, there is no beauty that we should desire him. He is despised and rejected by man, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And we hid, as it were, our faces from him. He was despised and we did not esteem him. Look at that. And when we see him, there is no beauty that we should desire him. Now, here's where God is different than we are. If we were going to send our son to save the world and we wanted men to run to him... We wouldn't, we wouldn't send a son like that in, a, in, an out, in an outer skin that was less than attractive and beautiful. We would want to create something that's going to be as attractive and as beautiful as possible so that men would be drawn to it. But it was not the outward skin of Jesus that men were to be drawn to any more than the outward covering of the tabernacle was to define its beauty. If the, the, the beauty of the tabernacle was going to be defined outwardly, then, then Israel missed the entire point of it. If we think Jesus, the beauty of Jesus, is defined by his outward form, then we've missed the entire purpose of why Jesus came. And if this speaks of Jesus, it also speaks of us. And like Jesus, we must be willing to become unattractive to the world. The beauty of Jesus, what is attractive about Jesus is not an outward beauty. The beauty of Jesus is inward, past the skin of his outer covering. He is the divine son of God, filled with the beauty and the splendor of all the Godhead. He is the very image of the invisible God. If you only considered what you saw outwardly, especially as he hung on the cross, stripped and scourged and bloody, beaten to a pulp, you would miss his true essence in the reality of who he is. And many did in his day. They mocked him. They looked at him. They said, you are no Messiah. You don't look like a Messiah. You don't act like a Messiah. You don't even die like a Messiah. You're dying like a common criminal. There's nothing about you that speaks Messiah. But what was he? Who was he? He was the Messiah. As he hung dying on that cross, he is the savior of the world. But men were fooled by the outer skin. They put their trust in the outer skin and could not see what was inward. And the world will look at you and do the very same thing. So it is with the believer. We should not waste our time trying to become attractive to the world. We should not do that personally. I'm not saying don't take a bath and wear clean clothes, okay? You understand what I'm saying? But we should not obsess with trying to fit in with the world, look like the world, dress like the world, sound like the world, smell like the world, be like the world, to be accepted and attracted by the world. Our churches should not waste their time trying to become attractive to the world. Because we had a Savior who came on purpose, purposefully being unattractive, but yet giving men eyes to see the inward beauty. And that's what's going to make the difference. You've got to have eyes to see the inward beauty. You've got to have eyes to see Christ in you, the hope of glory. And this is why the world is so confused. This is why the world doesn't get us. Because the world is all about outward appearances. The world is all about outward attractiveness. And unfortunately, the world is, the church is falling into that, has fallen into that. We want to be like the world. We want to attract the world. So we want to act like the world, be like the world, do the things the world does. 
And so we can attract the world. Yet we do not see this anywhere in scripture that Jesus did this, that God did this. It's not what we put on the outside, but what is produced from the inside where the spirit of God indwells us. It's not our adornments, but the fruit, his fruit that must become the attraction the world seeks. This will happen as God works in us as we display his fruit through our lives. It's not how beautiful the tree is. It's how sweet the fruit is that makes the difference. That really matters. I mean, if you take peaches to the farmer's market and they're, they're pithy and you know what I'm talking about. You bite into it and there's no juice. It's just like biting into moist cotton. They're, they're beautiful, though, on the outside. You ever buy peaches like that in the store? Man, these peaches look great. You get them home, you take a bite. It's like, oh, my God, these are horrible. But you're at the farmer's market, and you got these pithy, beautiful peaches that taste like that. But you tell the people, listen, these things taste horrible, but you should see how beautiful the tree is that they came off of. You think that would be a good selling point for you? Now, they could care less what the tree looks like. What they want to know is, what does the fruit taste like? It's not how beautiful the tree is. It's how sweet the fruit is that matters. The tabernacle informs us who Christ is, and so it informs us who we are today. The tabernacle was the tent of meeting. It was where God met with his people. It was the center of the camp of Israel. It was central to their worship, and it was central to their preparation for warfare. God prepared Israel spiritually for 40 years. Now think about it. When God, Moses is getting this download from God, we're three months out from Egypt. Three months Israel will spend another 40 years wandering in the wilderness because they refused to obey God. But God was not just marking time. God was working in those 40 years, preparing Israel spiritually, conducting spiritual warfare all the while he was raising up an army to obey him before he sent them into physical warfare to take their physical land. Like Israel of old, the tabernacle is a picture of our life, our worship, and our warfare today. God has a land he wants us to take. There is a kingdom that is advancing. It is the kingdom of God, and we are the agents. We are the ambassadors. In fact, we are the warriors of the kingdom that are taking the ground that God has given to us. Jesus said it like this, the meek shall inherit the earth. What will we inherit one day in Christ? Not, not just a few cities, not a few states, not a few nations, not a continent or two. We are going to inherit the earth, Jesus said. Today, we are no longer wandering nomads in a wilderness. We are a royal priesthood, ruling and reigning with him as he is building his church in the earth. Listen to who we are as described by the word of God. 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 9 and 10 this is Peter writing about us. But you are a chosen generation, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, his own special people that you may proclaim the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light, who once were not a people, but are now the people of God, who had not obtained mercy, but now have obtained mercy. That's us, church. Or listen to John in his revelation of Jesus Christ. Revelation 1, verses 5 through 6. And from Jesus Christ, the faithful witness, the firstborn from the dead, and the ruler over the kings of the earth, to him who loved us and washed us from our sins in his own blood, and has made us, listen, kings and priests, to his God and Father, to him be glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. Or Revelation 5, verses 9 and 10. And they sang a new song, saying, 
You are worthy to take the scroll and to open its seals for you were slain and have redeemed us to God by your blood out of every tribe and tongue and people and nation and have made us kings and priests to our God and we shall reign on the earth. You think you're going to spend eternity in heaven? You better think again. We're going to reign on the earth. The ram, and let's go back to that next to the last covering, that ram skin dyed red. Why a ram skin? The ram signified the substitute in the consecration offering. Let's go to Leviticus chapter 8, verses 18 through 24. Now we're going to fast forward past this instruction. Now, when we read this in Leviticus, the tabernacle is built. And Moses is consecrating Aaron and his sons. He's consecrating the priesthood. He's purifying them. He's getting them ready to begin to perform the duties that they will perform in the tabernacle. Leviticus 8, 18. Then he, that's Moses, brought the ram as the burnt offering, and Aaron and his sons laid their hands on the head of the ram. And Moses killed it. Then he sprinkled the blood all around the altar and he cut the ram into pieces and Moses burned the head, the pieces and the fat and he washed the entrails and the legs in the water and Moses burned the whole ram on the altar. It was a burnt sacrifice for a sweet aroma, an offering made by fire to the Lord as the Lord had commanded Moses. So they bring a ram and they offer the whole thing to God. Then look at this. Verse 22, and he brought a second ram, the ram of consecration. What what does it mean to be consecrated? It means to be set apart for. It means to be inaugurated into. It means to be ordained. This is is who you are. This is what you're, you're doing. They were consecrating the priesthood, setting them aside, setting them apart, inaugurating them to, to be priest in the tabernacle. The ram of consecration. Then Aaron and his sons laid their hands on the head of the ram. And Moses killed it. And he took some of its blood and put it on the tip of Aaron's right ear. On the thumb of his right hand. And on the big toe of his right foot. Sounds kind of weird to me. I don't know about you. I mean, God says, kill a ram and take the blood, Moses, and put it on the tip of Aaron's right ear. Put some on his right thumb and put some on his right big toe. What about the little toe, Lord? No, not the little toe, the big toe. Not the pinky, but the thumb. Can you imagine, if you didn't have thumbs, what could you do? Well, whatever you could do, you could not do it very easily if you didn't have thumb. If you didn't have big toes, if you just didn't have one big toe, do you know how difficult it would be for you to run and balance yourself and do things? It would be difficult. And then he brought Aaron's sons and Moses put some of the blood on the tips of the right ears, on the thumbs and the right of their right hands and on the big toe of their right feet. And Moses sprinkled the blood all around the altar. The priesthood was consecrated to God by the blood of a ram. That blood was applied to the right ear, the right thumb and the right big toe of each priest. This signified that they were to be completely governed by the will of God as revealed through the word of God. How did they, how did they hear the word of God? Through their ears. How did they do the word of God? With their hands. How did they go where the word of God told them to go? With their feet. Ear, thumb, big toe. What I hear, what I do, where I go. In other words, their entire life, 
not just when they were serving in the tabernacle, but their entire life was to be governed by the word and the will of God. The word of God heard with the ear was to command the priest. The blood applied to the right ear signified the priest hearing the word of God and conforming their life to God's word. The word of God reveals the will of God. God's will is to govern the actions of all his priests and all the priests were to do. This is signified by the blood applied to the right thumb of the right hand. The word of God was to govern where the priest went, the path and the way the priest was to walk. This was signified by the blood applied to the big toe of the right foot of each priest. God applied the blood purposefully to those parts of the body that were instrumental in carrying out the will of God. This, this is not an accident. At this point, we might be thankful that we're not priests governed by such strict governance, right? But if you were paying attention to what I just read, you now know that you are priests according to the Scripture. God has established in Jesus Christ, who is our great high priest, the priesthood of all believers. This is what the word calls us, priests as well as kings. You are a chosen generation, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, his own special people, that you may proclaim the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light, who once were not a people, but now are the people of God who had not obtained mercy, but now have obtained mercy. You are a royal priesthood, kings and priests reigning with God on this earth. In Christ, you and I are a chosen. We are a royal priesthood. We are now the people of God. We've been brought into the land to take it for his glory. We are in a battle. We are in a warfare that has victory as our guaranteed outcome. The outcome is not in question. But sometimes we live our lives as though the battle is not real. We're oblivious to the battle and we're oblivious to the warfare. And we're only conscious of it when something, you know, when we're wounded or when we're, we're, we're in, impacted in some negative way. Listen, the battle is raging everywhere all around us all the time. Whether you feel it or not, it's real. But the outcome, the outcome is never in question. That does not mean that the battle and the warfare are not real and that there are not real casualties. People often ask me, Pastor Jeff, why, why did my loved one have to die? Well, because sin is real. Not, are you saying my loved one's sin? No, that's not what I'm saying. I'm saying sin is real and sin brought death. And death is a symptom. Death is a casualty. Death is what war and battle and conflict produce. And if physical death is a real consequence of physical battles that rage on this physical earth, how much more will we experience the consequences of battle in this spiritual warfare? The good news for the believer is, though we may experience the casualties of war, the pain of war, the suffering of war, for the believer, that does not impact our victory at all. Let me read to you Ephesians 6, 10. The Bible teaches this warfare is real. Finally, my brethren, be strong in the Lord and in the power of his might. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the wiles of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against principalities, against powers, against the rulers of the darkness of this age, against spiritual hosts of wickedness in the heavenly places. Therefore, take up the whole armor of God that you may be able to withstand in the evil day. And having done all to stand, stand therefore, having girded your waist with truth, having put on the breastplate of righteousness, and having shod your feet with the preparation of the gospel of peace, above all, taking the shield of faith 
with which you may be able to quench all the fiery darts of the, of the wicked one and take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the spirit, which is the word of God, praying always with all prayer and supplication in the spirit, being watchful to this end with all perseverance and supplication for all the saints. The tabernacle informs us who Christ is and it informs us who we are in him. What we are called to be, who we are called to be, and what we are called to do. And we are called to be faithful in that just as Aaron in the priesthood was called to faithfully minister in that tabernacle. We are the tabernacle of God now. We are the place God's presence dwells in the earth. We are the royal priesthood. We are the warrior kings who have been sent out into the land to take that land for the glory of God. May we be faithful to that call. Amen. Let's get ready to come to the table. This table that speaks of our king, of our God, and of his body. This table does not just remind us of Jesus. It reminds us of Jesus and his body. And the only way you can become part of the body of Jesus is through faith in Jesus. And you are invited each week to come to affirm, to declare and to affirm your faith in Jesus. So I invite you to trust in Jesus. I invite you to come to the table. Let's all stand. The tabernacle reveals to us Christ. It reveals who Christ is. And so it reveals who we are in him. We are a chosen generation holy nation, his own special people. We are a warrior priesthood. We are warrior kings placed on this earth to build his kingdom, to be busy about the business of the kingdom until he comes again. This is the command of Jesus. Jesus promised that he would build his church and that the gates of hell would not prevail against it. Those gates are not moving, but we better be. We are warrior priests and kings called to storm the gates of hell. If we die doing it, we will wake up in the presence of the Lord. But live or die trying, those gates cannot prevail against his church. We are to take heart. We're to put our boots on. For we have battles to fight and work to be done for his kingdom. Our victory is not in question. For he has promised so. So church, I challenge you as the church to consider your resolve and your commitment to his church and to his cause to live as one who has been totally consecrated to God's service by the blood of Christ. May we rise up. May we be faithful for the task before us. Maybe we, may we do it all to and for his glory. Amen.